Open your Bibles to Matthew 21, where last week we had a chance to start our journey looking at the life of Christ in his final week before the crucifixion and recorded for us beginning here in Matthew chapter 21. And we tried last week to start sketching out the entire scope of all those events in the final week of the life of Christ, every one of them seeming to have weight and significance, uh, each one of them carrying uh, so much meaning. And, and so we, we want to think this through carefully so that we could really understand all of that meaning along the way. And you may remember it all started with the backdrop of the raising of Lazarus, which is recorded for us not in Matthew's gospel, but in John's gospel. That happened a few weeks before any of these events. Jesus was in the area. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He created quite a stir, so much so that he actually had to retreat out to a town called Ephraim uh, for a period of time, for probably a week or two until things died down, and then make his way back toward Jerusalem for, for the Passover week. But now, entering in, obviously, with a, a sort of a different level of recognition and popularity than he had probably ever known, at least in this, in this area. And he arrives, uh, you may remember we said, out in Bethany, a town about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And he probably arrived there on a, on a Friday night. John tells us he arrived on the Sabbath day, six days before the Passover. But that uh, Sabbath day actually began after sundown on Friday night. And uh, Jesus probably would not have made the 20-mile journey from Ephraim on that day of this, on the Sabbath itself. Jews typically did not travel uh, very far on Sabbath day. So most likely he arrives on Friday night. Um, he's, uh, he, he rests, uh, for the most part, on the Sabbath day. And then, of course, that evening there's a large banquet for him in his honor at the home of Mary and Martha. This is where she pours the ointment over his feet and anoints him. And then the following day, we're told by John that everyone heard that he was there and they gathered at the home of Mary and Martha uh, to hear him and to see him because they knew very well about the healing of, of Lazarus. And then it is at that point uh, that he then makes his way, not on the Sunday, but most likely the following morning, he sends his disciples out to find this donkey and her colt to bring them out to the village of Bethany from Bethphage. Jesus then mounts the colt and begins the two-mile journey through all of these crowds into the city of, of, uh, of Jerusalem. This was, as we said last week, what is known sometimes as the, as the triumphal Entry and of course all the crowds are there. They're they're uh, they're declaring his praise, Hosanna to the Son of David. And in the midst of that, I think I mentioned briefly last week, as Jesus is making his way through the valley up the Mount of Olives and then cresting the hill, as he sees Jerusalem spread out be below, Ma uh, Luke tells us that it's at that point that he actually pauses in the midst of all the jubilation, in the midst of all the, 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 the verbal uh, praise and everything that's going on around him. He actually stops and begins to weep, to wail, almost uncontrollably crying. Uh, in the midst of all of this seeming joy, he is overcome with grief because of the evident blindness that's all around him. 
He can see through the praise and he can see through all the, the song. He can see through all of that and he comes to the conclusion that Israel does not understand what it is that will make for their peace. They have notions of what it is they need, but it's not true. And he knows what is ahead. He knows the destruction that's coming. And so there's this striking image of him that Luke paints for us in the midst of all these cheers, this striking image of him breaking down in tears as he makes his way. Of course, he, he follows the pathway there, the little trail probably heading into the southern part of the city, going into Jerusalem. And then we read this last week, how they were laying their garments down for like a royal carpet, uh, laying down palm branches to kind of create this scene for him coming into the city. And the next thing that we read in Matthew 21, in verse 12, is about him entering the temple and clearing out all of these money changers and all of these people selling doves and all these other things. But, but that's not the full sequence To really understand the full sequence, you have to pick up a little detail given to us by Mark over in Mark chapter 11, where Mark tells us that Jesus entered Jerusalem, came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. In other words, at the end of this triumphal entry wasn't this, uh, this chaotic scene of him clearing out the temple. It was actually a much more sort of passive and peaceful event where he just comes in, he just looks around at everything that's going on, he turns around, walks back out, and makes his way back out to Bethany. He goes out to the home of Mary, Martha, Lazarus, spending the night out there again, pondering all the things that he had just seen that day in the city. The next morning, Tuesday morning, he arises and he makes his way back, this time not with so much fanfare, not riding the colt of a donkey, not with crowds lining the streets necessarily, but he makes his way back into Jerusalem. And this is actually where Matthew picks up the story in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple... And drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came into the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes? Have you, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now, just a little more context for you. This is obviously not the first time Jesus has been to the temple. He was there the day before. He may have gone uh, one other time in his uh, uh, previous life of ministry, the last three years, that is to say. But most definitely he has been here before, three years earlier at the first Passover during his public ministry in the year 30 A.D., 
He also had come to Jerusalem, that time much less well-known, much less fanfare, and he entered into the temple, John 2 tells us, just like he does here, and he did something very similar. He takes and clears the temple, drives out all of the peddlers, all of the money changers, all those who are selling animals, and utterly clears the place out. Now, a lot of people have confused these two events. Some people have suggested that you know, John maybe was a little confused because John's the only one that talks about this first entry into the temple and this first clearing of the temple. Some people say, well, John was just a little confused. You know, he, he just mixed up where to put the story. He puts it at the front of Jesus's ministry when really it happened at the end, as if somehow John, who was an eyewitness of these events, would have forgotten that little detail. It's like forgetting, you know, where you were married or something like that. No, John knew exactly exactly what had taken place. He knew that Jesus had been there before, but the problem that John states is that they didn't understand. They didn't understand anything about that. They didn't understand why he did it. They didn't understand uh, uh, how it was all fit into, how it would all fit into his plan. They were oblivious to the whole thing. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look over with me at John chapter 2 because you can see how all of this took place. And John tells us that it wasn't until after the resurrection, really long after the resurrection, that they began to connect all the dots. John chapter 2 and verse 14, it says to us, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and he made a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Down in verse 18, John says that the Jews came to him saying, what sign do you show for us? Uh, what sign do you show us for doing these things? I mean, you know, what's, what gives you the right, gives you the authority to do something like this? Give us some sort of credential. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews said to him, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? And apparently that was it. John says, from that point, you know, they just didn't understand. No one really understood what was going on. They didn't understand at that point. They wouldn't understand it for years to come. It all ended, they might say, in a dud. It didn't didn't lead to any sort of massive insurrection. I mean, there was this upheaval in the temple. There might have been some tense moments, but it it didn't move on to some sort of armed rebellion. After a confrontation from the leaders, they demanded a sign, a miracle, something that would prove that he had some sort of right to do something like this. They asked for it, and in their minds, they didn't get it. Jesus just said some sort of, a mumble jumble about tearing down the temple and he would rebuild it in three days, which obviously in their minds didn't happen. It, it was all for naught. It was just some big, some, some big uh, as I said, dud. Uh, 
at least in the minds of his detractors, probably in the minds of his disciples as well. They, they didn't understand what that was all about. And, and they wouldn't understand, John says, until much later that he was referring to the temple of his body and the resurrection after three days. But for most people, I mean, it was, it was a mockery. As a matter of fact, here, back over in Matthew, if you learn, turn over to chapter 26, when Jesus is eventually drugged before the Sanhedrin and put on trial, <clears throat> there are people who, are, who would come forward and testify against him, and they would say, uh, Matthew 26, verse 61, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God. He didn't actually say that. They're putting words in his mouth. I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. See, that's not from Matthew's account in Matthew 21. That's from John chapter 2. That's from the previous visit to the temple. They still remember it. They're still using it against him. They're still mocking him for what they all view as some sort of, some sort of failed uh, attempt uh, by Jesus, some sort of false claim to be able to tear down and build up the temple. Later on in chapter 27, when Jesus is finally nailed to the cross in verse 39, we read that those who pass by, Matthew 27, 39, derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. You see, they still remember that first visit and they're still mocking him for it. They're still mocking him for it. They still think that he, in that sense, was a no-show. That may explain a little bit why, in this particular instance, they don't necessarily clamp down on him. They don't immediately move to arrest him because they probably are thinking that this whole thing might die down once again, this, thing whole, this whole thing might wind up being just one other huge embarrassment for Christ. But the story is a little different this time. Because this time Jesus is not showing up as some unknown rabble rouser from Galilee. This time he's coming not only with a triumphant procession of praise, but he's coming as a known worker of miracles. Everyone knows that he had raised this man from the dead out in the village of Bethany just a week or so before. Everyone knows that he has now this reputation as a miracle worker, worker up in Galilee. Everyone knows, even at this point, the kind of acclaim that he had had the day before whenever he came into, into Jerusalem. And now, here he is returning on Tuesday morning once again to call out the corrupt worship that was taking place there. And this isn't some sort of outburst of spontaneous anger. This isn't Jesus just sort of flying off the handle. He was there the day before. He had kind of surveyed everything. He had gone back that night and he had pondered everything that had taken place. He had thought about how once again Israel had so corrupted the worship of God. He had thought about how they had turned this this facility, this temple that was supposed to be uh, some expression of Israel's repentance and brokenness and sorrow. That's what, the, that's what the temple system was supposed to be. It was supposed to be people who were coming out of a recognition of their own sin, 
and bringing animals as a substitute for themselves because they themselves ought to be the ones who are slaughtered. And so they bring the animal in place of themselves and they place the animal on the, on the altar. The altar, the animal slaughtered, blood is everywhere and in that way they are absolved. Uh, they are atoned for, for all of their evil deeds. That, that is what the temple was supposed to represent. It's supposed to represent a people who knew their sin and were broken for it. But instead, the whole thing had become an enterprise dedicated to covering up their sin. And not just covering up their sin, exploiting other people as well. It was the essence of hypocrisy. It was, it was just a, a thin veneer covering over a life of wickedness. And they called it all worship. So Jesus arrives this morning with a great disdain for how they had polluted everything God had given them. How they had polluted the worship that He had called for. And he puts on a display that was intended not only to purify the temple, not only cleanse and purify their worship, but to symbolize his whole purpose for coming, to renew within Israel the true worship of God. And that's really what this is all about. And he knows this is temporary. He knows just like before, he'll do this and then eventually they'll go back to where they were before. But this is a massive symbol of what Jesus ultimately wants Israel to do and to be and how he wants his kingdom to operate. And to that end, what we see here are really three stages of a kind of cleansing and a reestablishing of true and genuine worship in the temple. That's what this is all about. And, and it begins there in verses 12 through 13 with the first of these sort of stages, which is the disruption of their perverse prophets. Uh, Jesus enters into the temple, Matthew tells us, and immediately goes to town clearing out. He probably entered up through the, uh, the southern steps, which would rise Uh, Up the hill from the city of David, he would go up through the streets and he would find those massive stone steps, which are still there today. The the gates themselves have been blocked up. The southern gates have been uh, closed up. But that used to be the main entrance by which people would go up into the temple uh, from uh, from, uh, the, the city of David. And they would enter and immediately step onto a portico a covered portico that stretched the entire length of the southern wall of the temple. Out in front of Jesus would have been that whole courtyard, 32 acres large, which made up the entire temple complex. On the other end, on the northern end against the other wall, would have been the hall of hewn stones, that sort of cathedral that had been built against or into the northern wall where the Sanhedrin met and carried on all of their business inside of that, that sort of cathedral complex. And in between that wall and in between where he stood, right in the middle of the temple would have been the, the temple proper, the actual building where they did all the sacrifices and all that. that. That building was surrounded by a wall that was apparently just a couple feet tall. But all along the way, it would have been interspersed with signs that were basically warning Uh, saying any Gentile who enters here will be responsible for his own death. You see, that 
that little wall encompassing about 10 of the 32 acres, uh, that was reserved for Jews. Everything else was for Gentiles. In fact, they called it the, 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 the courtyard of the Gentiles. That a massive complex that was out in front of them. So Jesus comes in and that's the scene in front of him. But flanked to either side along this portico were all of these tables and booths and shops that had all been set up literally hundreds of yards along the edge of the southern wall. They would have been allowed into the temple, we're told from the Mishnah, 10 days prior to the Passover. Typically, they weren't there. They weren't there all the time. But 10 days before the Passover, the Mishnah says that they allowed the money changers to set up inside the temple. Why? Because this was the time of the year when you paid your temple tax. You paid it on the Passover, before the Passover. And people would show up from all over the world, all the Jews who were, who were spread out all over the world and throughout Israel. They would all travel to Jerusalem and they would bring their money and they have to pay their temple tax, which the Old Testament said was a half shekel. They didn't typically trade in shekels these days. They had Roman money, they had Greek money, they had all this other kind of money. But in order to conform with the law, they had to pay in a half shekel. And the priest determined that the only shekel they were going to accept would be a shekel minted in, in Tyre, the Tyrian shekel. Why? Because that, was, that had a reputation for being the purest in terms of its gold content. It was supposedly 94% pure gold. And so they didn't want any other sort of uh, impure or, you know, half, uh, half, half uh, gold coin, no matter what it called itself. They wanted only the most valuable coins turned over to them for the temple tax. And so people would come with all of their Roman coinage or their Greek coinage or whatever they had, and they would have to exchange that money, which in many cases had very little uh, gold content or silver content in it. They had to have to exchange all that money for the much more uh, expensive, precious, dear Tyrian shekel, many times losing 15 to 20% of its value in the trade. In other words, there was a there was a premium on all of these trades that were themselves being funneled back to the high priest family. Him, his sons, his sons-in-law, all of his children and grandchildren. The, how, the whole sort of aristocracy, if you will, within Israel was all being, was all being so, sort of having their pockets lined by this money trading endeavor. And then along with all these all these booths and all these money changers, there would have been interspersed all kinds of, of traders of animals. There would have been some oxen, there would have been some lambs, but the predominant ones were pigeons or doves. So the same word in Greek it could refer to, to either one. Because people, when they came to the Passover, they had to offer up a sacrifice, and the sacrifice had to be an approved sacrifice. It couldn't be a a blemished animal. They were supposed to gather from among their flock some, the best that they had and bring it to the temple. But many of them knew the danger of taking that animal and transporting it, sometimes weeks on end, the, the, the kind of sickness, the kind of injuries 
that it could incur only to show up at the temple and to have the animal rejected now because it's emaciated or hurt in some way or sick or whatever it might be. And there they would be with no animal uh, and with no sacrifice. And so they fell into the pattern of just not even bothering. They would just come to the temple and they would wind up buying their sacrifice there. And, and for many of them, they were poor. And, and the law, the Old Testament law, actually allowed them, if they couldn't offer a lamb or if they couldn't offer you know, something from their flock, from their sheep, the Old Testament actually allowed them to offer two pigeons or two doves instead. You may remember this is what happened when Jesus was born. Uh, Mary and Joseph were so poor, they couldn't offer the typical lamb, so they had to go and they had to offer two pigeons instead. Well, this was taking place in the temple as well. All of these rows and shops of people selling pigeons, the offering of the poor, so that people could actually make uh, what was prescribed by the law, make the offering to the Lord. The problem, we're told, is that these doves and these pigeons were being sold at exorbitant prices. As a matter of fact, a few years after this, the Talmud records that there was a reform effort by one Rabbi Simeon ben Gamaliel. That was his name, Simeon ben Gamaliel. He led a reform movement because apparently they were selling these pigeons, one pigeon for one gold dinar, which was 20 to 25 times the price of what a pigeon could be purchased for anywhere else. So they were, they were completely extorting people. They were basically, uh, basically charging uh, way more than what these pigeons were worth. In fact, Gamaliel uh, goes out, Simeon ben Gamaliel goes out and uh, enacts this program, which uh, by the end of it, we're told, had dropped the price of these, these pigeons all the way down from one gold dinar to one quarter of a silver dinar a 95% drop in price when he was all said. That's how, much, that's how much they had driven up the price of these doves. And of course, as I said, all of it was being driven as some sort of kickback to the royal priestly families within the temple. So the whole portico is just filled with this, this mess. All of it to cut a profit from every transaction, every exchange, every sale of a pigeon or a dove. And the gospel writers say that when Jesus showed up that morning, he, act, he just absolutely went to town clearing everything out. We don't know how he did it. Matthew doesn't give us, give us the specifics. Maybe like three years earlier, maybe he fashioned a whip out of some cords and he drove them out. Whatever he did, it was a physical display of monumental proportions, a single-handed exercise overturning uh, literally hundreds of yards of tables and 
and uh, booths, flipping over the chairs, pouring out the money, chasing people and all of their animals out of the temple grounds. Mark actually tells us in his gospel that not only did he clear out the portico, but he wouldn't even allow people to carry their merchandise through the temple. Apparently, people were entering in probably from the eastern gate um, up on the north side of the temple and bringing all of their pack animals just kind of running through the courtyard carrying all of their wares down to the uh, uh, Teropian Valley, which would have been outside the temple on the southern side. And so there's this constant train of merchandise and commerce that was trafficked through the temple as a shortcut. And Jesus comes in and he puts a stop to all of it, brings us to a standstill. And for one day at least, one day he reclaims the temple of God. Running out all the extortioners, all the peddlers, all the people who are exploiting the system for personal gain, removing every person who was there for some other motive other than worshiping God and reestablishing the purity of the temple. What would cause him to do this? What would cause this otherwise gentle teacher to respond in such a public and violent way. I mean, this was violent. Well, he tells us right there in verse 13, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. That's a, that's a mashup, really, of two Old Testament passages, Jeremiah 7 and Isaiah 56. Jeremiah 7 is known as the great temple sermon by Jeremiah. This is where he was called by the Lord to go and deliver a particular message. In fact, over in Jeremiah 7, if you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. It's a, it's a fabulous chapter. The entire chapter is one of the most memorable chapters in the entire Old Testament. But in Jeremiah 7 verse 2, get over there to it. This is what Jeremiah says, or the Lord tells Jeremiah, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I'll let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, they were were showing up at God's temple day after day with lives that were unrepentant, unamended in that sense. They weren't really doing anything to transform their lives, and yet they thought that they could come and they could just chant or they could just regurgitate or repeat the same words, oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And that would be meaningful to God. Just mouth the words of praise that they mouth the week before, or the month before, or the same words that everyone around them is mouthing. And that somehow, some way, that would be meaningful to the Lord when their lives are despicable. He goes on down. In verse 8, Jeremiah does, 
Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we're delivered. Praise God for salvation. Glory to God for whatever it might be. Are you going to come and you're going to live that way outside the walls of the, of the temple and then come in here and think that your praise of my works is going to mean anything? Are you going to say all these things only to go on doing all these abominations? He says in verse 10, verse 11, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? See, this was the issue of Jeremiah's day, same thing in Jesus's day. It was hypocritical worship. They were doing all of these things outwardly, but inwardly, they were nothing more than hypocrites. That, that's really the idea here behind the den of robbers, or, or it could be translated the cave of robbers. The word is really a hideout. That's what a den or a cave was. It was a place, if you were on the run from somebody, that you would find some cave and you would hide out there. So Jesus is asking them, just like Jeremiah was asking them, are you making this your hideout? You say, well, how in the world could it be a hideout? Well, they were hiding in plain sight. They had these lives, these sinful lives, that they were trying to hide behind all of their religious activity, all of their praise, all of their religious-sounding language. They were, they were adulterers, they were thieves, they were fornicators, they were, they were liars, robbers, hiding in plain sight. That's what Jeremiah is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. They had constructed this, this, um, this whole system of religion and all of it designed to, to allow people to hide filthy lives. This is the last thing God wanted the temple to be. What did he want it to be? He wanted it to be a house of prayer. That's the other part of the quote coming from Isaiah 56. It's actually a passage that... Um, is not looking at the same time as Jeremiah. It's actually looking at a much different time, the time of the Messiah's return, the Messianic age. And that's an age where he said he would rebuild the temple and the temple would actually be a place of worship for all peoples. Isaiah 56, verse 6, foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples." The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I'll gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So this is what he says that the temple is supposed to be. It's supposed to be not a place where you gather to hide your filthy lives behind superficial worship. It's not a place for you to gather and exploit other people. It's a place for you to come with a sincere heart, with a pure heart. It's a place for outcasts, for foreigners, 
for those who feel far from the Lord to come in and to meet with Him, to offer genuine worship to the Lord. Israel, unfortunately, had turned all of this on its head. It had turned the temple into a place of exploitation, a system that instead of being represented by all this humility was represented by selfishness, self-pursuits, all of them engaged in taking advantage of other people while trying to appear to be spiritual. And so Jesus comes in with this violent explosion to absolutely clean all of that stuff out and to once again establish a place where people could come and worship, particularly the outcast, which is really the second stage of this temple reestablishment here in verse 14. Jesus demonstrates the divine priorities that were intended for the temple. You'll see it there in verse 14 where the outcast actually begin to come now to the temple. It says the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. These are, these are people who had actually been excluded from the temple compound by the oral law. Uh, the, the, the Jewish leadership had misinterpreted the Old Testament, which said that priests couldn't serve if they were blind and lame. But they misinterpreted that to mean that no blind or lame person was going to be allowed in the temple. And so these people couldn't even come into the temple. But here, now that Jesus has chased out all of the polluting elements, now He throws open the gates, if you were, and welcomes these people in. And they all line up, probably along that same portico. And they all are experiencing healing. You know, it's interesting. This is the only healing Jesus ever did in Jerusalem. Apart from if you want to include Lazarus out in Bethany. He, he did all kinds of healings up in, in Galilee, all kinds of healings out in the Gentile territories. But for whatever reason, he never saw fit or never had a purpose for doing any healings, apparently, inside of, inside of Jerusalem. But, but here is different. This is different. Now suddenly, he engages in this all day healing crusade, if you will. Healing all these people who were coming to him. This was a special occasion to demonstrate a special renewal of the temple with a massive display of his power. You know, earlier, three years earlier when he came to the temple, they were like, you're not doing any signs. You're not showing any power. Well, this time's different. He puts on a massive display of power. Right there in the heart of Israel, right there in the heart of Jerusalem, right in the heart of the temple courtyard, this massive display of healing power. And it's obvious why. Because this is a preview of what the temple's supposed to be. This is what God intended the temple to be. He intended it to be a place where all of those who are in need of mercy can come. Where all of those who are outcasts can come. All those people who thought that they were somehow excluded from God because of something that was wrong with them. Maybe some sin that they had committed that had made them 
too unworthy, too unwanted, too filthy, too whatever it might be. All those people who thought that they were not allowed at the epicenter of the worship of God, they're now welcomed. They're welcomed. They're embraced. They're showered with mercy and grace and the power of God in their lives. This is the preview of the temple that God wanted and the preview of the temple that He one day will restore, Isaiah 56 says. You know, it's so interesting. He frightened all these other people away. Whatever He did, He cleared, it out, cleared them out. Had to be this violent display. But at the same time, whatever He did, He didn't frighten these people away. They somehow understood that in spite of all of the rage and the wrath against all of the hypocritical sin, in spite of all of that wrath, there was still a heart of mercy that wanted them. And so they were there probably all day. Luke 19.47 says Jesus was also teaching, interspersed, I'm sure, with these healings he was teaching. And Luke, in Luke's words, they were hanging on every word. This is what the temple's supposed to be. It was supposed to be a place dedicated to the worship of God, dedicated to the mercy of God, dedicated to the truth of God, all of it fulfilling what God had always designed the temple to be. True worship taking place that day in the temple, which is really kind of the third stage that you see unfolding in verse 15 through 17 when Jesus defies their demands to silence the praise that begins to erupt because of all this. In verse 15, the chief priests and the scribes saw all the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. And they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? These religious leaders They just respond to the whole thing with anger and indignation. And it's very clear why. Matthew says why they responded this way. After having seen the wonderful things that he did, they saw the miracles. They saw the healing. They had seen the blind receiving their sight. They saw lame people rising up from their their beds and walking. They saw that. And this was their response. They should have been rejoicing at God's grace and God's glory. They should have been recognizing the power of God. They should have been recognizing the truth of God. But like so many people who do not believe, they go on trying to justify their unbelief in the face of God's truth. They can stare in the face of God's obvious glory. They can stare in the face of God's obvious mercy. They can stare in the face of God's obvious truth and it just makes them more angry. And it makes them more hard-hearted. This is what unbelievers do. Earlier they were saying, show us some sign. Now he shows them all the signs they need and they still don't want to believe. That's what unbelievers do. 
in the face of all of God's glory, all of God's mercy, all of God's truth, they just get angrier because they don't want to be exposed. They don't want to be exposed in their pride. They don't want to be exposed in their wickedness. So instead of evaluating their hearts and falling down and worshiping, they actually demand that Jesus stop all of this. Do you hear what these are saying? All these kids crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. They, they, they were implying that maybe somehow these kids were being manipulated. These little kids, you know, are being coerced into saying these things. And you ought to, you ought to be the adult and you ought to not sort of impose that on them. You hear what they're saying? Jesus says, yeah. Yeah, I hear it. And then he defiantly offers biblical context for what's happening around them. Have you never read? You guys are the teachers. You guys are the priest. Don't you know your Bible? Haven't you read your Bible? See, he knew that these guys use the Bible when it's convenient for them to cover up their sin, when it was a a way of them hiding in open and plain sight, they would use the Scripture. But when it wasn't convenient for them, they suddenly had amnesia. Don't you know what you have read? Don't you know what the Bible says? And then he quotes for them from Psalm 8 of all places, which is a psalm of celebration for God's creation, how God made the angels and God made creation. He made man. And in the midst of that psalm in verse 2, it actually says, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. That, That was his justification for these kids crying out with praise to him. And it is a not so subtle reference to himself as the true object of worship in the temple. The praise he's talking about from Psalm 2 is the praise of God. And the logic, if you follow it, is pretty plain. Psalm 8 says that children give praise to God. I am God, and so it's appropriate for them to praise me. That's the only logic that makes sense out of the use of this verse. Jesus clearly understands himself to be none other than God in human flesh. It's the most appropriate thing that I be praised in this temple. And it's sad that it's the kids who see that more clearly than you. God says, I've perfected praise. What does that mean? It just means that that praise comes in a more pure way for whatever reason from little kids. Why is that? Well, because they haven't haven't learned the nuances of hypocrisy. They haven't learned to try to cover up their sin with with high-sounding religious terminology. They haven't learned all the techniques of adults, and they haven't lived a life of sin that has so hardened them against God that they would withhold praise from Him. They're sinners. We all know that. They're not perfect in any way, 
But they have the humility, at least, to recognize that in spite of whatever's going on in their life, God is worthy of praise. And so kids are just more naturally inclined, more open to acknowledge God and to praise God. And so God perfects praise on their lips. And so they're offering in the temple what really should have been offered by everybody. This is what the temple was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a place where people gathered and gave praise to God, a place where the weak and the outcast could come and find the mercy of God, a place where people could come and hear the truth of God. And yet these guys had turned it into a hideout where people would cover up a life of sin with religious activity like so many people today, maybe like you. You come and you, you sing praise, you sing the songs, you say the prayers, you say amen. You use all the terminology in the hallway because you can cover up whatever's going on in your life for people around you. But Jeremiah said it, Jesus said it. God is not fooled. Listen, if God is working in your heart today, don't resist Him. Don't become like these Pharisees. Don't harden your heart against Him. If you are seeing the obvious glory of God, if you are seeing the obvious mercy of God, if you're seeing His glory on display in the people around you, even in your own life, if you're seeing all those things, don't be like these Pharisees. Be like these little kids. Lay aside all the pretense. Set aside all the schemes. Realize your need for His mercy. Realize as much as any outcast, any person that's never darkened the doors of this church or any other church, the person that that you might think really, really needs God, realize that you're that person. And take up the voice of praise to the God of your salvation. Father, these are as true today as they've ever been, these words of warning, words that speak to every worshiper on the face of the earth, calling us to examine ourselves. Have we been trapped? Or have we used our religion as some sort of mask to cover up a life of sin and worldliness. You, O Lord, are not fooled and your hand of judgment will not be delayed forever. I pray for those who are here today who have offered to you only mere words of praise. I pray that they would drop the pretense and drop the pride. And I pray that they would humble themselves like children. That they would lift up their voices and cry out to you, Hosanna. God save us. God be merciful. I need you. Let that be the voice of true worship that arises in all of our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.